0: Having the right tools, actually having the right friends like Teddy, can make all the difference in the world. And when it comes to firewood, at least we are ready for the winter. Before yesterday, our logs were too big, or they were too long for our fireplace. Now they're perfect. In the same way, having a right understanding of Jesus really makes all the difference. And in today's story we're going to find two groups of individuals that misunderstood him. They should have got it. But they kept swinging away with an outdated tool, and they missed out, at least in the moment, for his power to set them free and for his power to help them, in the theme of our series, to reclaim life itself. How do we reclaim life? How do we live in freedom? How do we have the kind of lives and the kind of relationships um, that we've always longed for? Well, here's what I want to do this morning. Open your Bibles to page 892, if you're using the text in front of you. Let me give you the plan of what we're going to do this morning. We find ourselves in John chapter 7, and we're going to read through verse 24. I'm going to read this passage. Try to make just a little bit of commentary, not a lot, a little bit of commentary on it, and uh, then we'll ask three relevant questions that I believe emerge from this passage. Okay, let's take a moment and uh, let's close our eyes. Let's pause and be still before the Lord, and ask Him to open up our eyes to see spiritual eyes to see this morning. Father, uh, thank you so much for gathering us here this morning, and we. Rejoice in the life that you've given us and the community, the spiritual community you've given us where we can come together and we can look at the words of Jesus and let them read us and let them change us. Give us eyes of faith and inspire us this morning that we might see something that we've never seen before that would make us different when we walk out of this place this morning. Uh, We love you, Lord. We confess our inadequacy to you. We thank you for uh, the substitutionary death of Christ that makes forgiveness, that makes access to you possible. And uh, so now God, uh, open us up and change us as a community. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 1 again. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, this feast commemorated the 40 years of wandering in the desert. Pilgrims came to Jerusalem, set up a temporary shelter uh, made of booths, or palm trees, and willows, and uh, so they could remember what that wandering experience was like. Verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But, verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not in public, but in private. Now the first thing that we sort of have to get out of the way here is the question, was Jesus lying? (laughs) It appears like he's lying here. I don't think so. Let me mention a couple of things. Number one is the Greek present tense in verse 8 can legitimately have the sense of saying, I am not now going. I am not now going. That's one explanation. But there's also, I think, a second explanation, perhaps more plausible, and it's this. that John may be emphasizing that Jesus is not operating under any human timetable. He is operating under divine guidance. Even family, even family And its commitments does not supersede God's leadership, God the Father's leadership in Jesus' life. Remember, we saw that dynamic where, remember? The same thing in chapter 2 with his mother. He wanted to make sure that he communicated that his loyalty to God the Father was greater than even family loyalty. Let's go on. Look at the next verse. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, Jesus did not attend their great rabbinical centers. He did not sit under any of their respected rabbis. He did not quote their great traditions like a chain link back to Moses. That's how the Jewish leaders spoke. They, they cited everything, this precedent from previous speakers going all the way back to Moses. Jesus didn't do that. So verse 16, Jesus answers in this, My teaching is not mine As we'll see in a moment, they were accusing Jesus of breaking the law. But Jesus turns it around, saying, in effect, you're accusing me of breaking the law, yet there is evil in your heart. You are seeking to kill an innocent man. A very clear violation of the sixth commandment, do not murder. So verse 20, the crowd answers, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? What a, what a demeaning, what, a, what an angry, cruel insult this is. We have to wonder if this accusation of paranoia comes from the foreign travelers to the feast. The Feast of Booths brought pilgrims from, from all over the Jewish world. That the authorities wanted Jesus dead was well known by those living in Jerusalem. So these may have been people living outside of Jerusalem. Jesus answers back and says, I did one work, and you marvel, you all marvel at it. Now we'll see in a moment, this one work goes back to John chapter 5. Remember John chapter 5? That was the healing of the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus says, they didn't marvel at the healing, but that someone would dare Flaunt, he would break, number one, he'd break it, but then he would flaunt so openly the breaking of their Sabbath rules. Jesus had told the man in a clear violation of their traditions to pick up and carry his mat. That very wording is in their tradition. A specific violation, unnecessary work done on the Sabbath. Look at the next verse, verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Okay, again, a little bit of history here to help us understand what Jesus is saying. Circumcision happened when? Those of you who know this, it happened, according to Mosaic law, eight days after birth. That was a command in the Mosaic Law, but this creates a conundrum, right? It creates a conflict. What if that same eighth day happens to fall on a Sabbath day? And that would break the law. That would be a violation of doing unnecessary work, the circumcision. So to resolve it, they determined that the law regarding circumcision took precedence. There was a hierarchy of importance. And that circumcision took precedence over the law against unnecessary work on the Sabbath. So look at what Jesus says. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well. This is what I think Jesus is saying here. It's a, it's a lesser to greater argument. What he's saying, I think, is that you see, I have sought, as Jesus, I've sought to interpret the meaning of the law when two provisions appear to contradict. And the appearance of contradiction should have forced you, Pharisees, you religious leaders, the appearance of a contradiction should have forced you to think more deeply about the essence of the law. It should have forced you to seek God's wisdom. Because the law, the purpose of the law, is to inform us on how to love God and to love others. That is the essence of the law. And when there was an apparent contradiction, it should have forced you to think about the meaning, the essence of the law, that we are called to love God and to love others. If you had reflected on that idea, if you had reflected on the idea that Sabbath points to redemption, Sabbath points to spiritual rest, and Sabbath points to healing then you would have perfectly understood what I was doing. And you would not have challenged it. You see, the healing of this man's whole body captures the very spirit of the Sabbath, the very spirit of the law. And that lack of spiritual discernment, that lack of judgment on the part of the religious leaders is what makes perfect sense then of this final statement in verse 24. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You made a reflexive judgment based on superficial evidence, not with wisdom, not with the right understanding of the meaning and the essence of the law. Do not judge by appearances. So, that's our text for today. And I see three relevant questions that emerge, that bubble up out of this text. Number one, why did they make wrong judgments about Jesus? Number two, how do we still misunderstand Jesus? And then number three, is there any way to get it right? Why did they make wrong judgments, both the brothers and the religious leaders? They should have known better. Secondly, how do we still misunderstand Jesus? And then thirdly, is there any way that we can know for certain that we've got it? Is there any way we can know that we have a good understanding? These are all three really relevant questions. Let's take a few minutes briefly on each of them. Number one, why did they make wrong judgments about Jesus? Well, there's two main parties here. There are the brothers, and there are the religious leaders. And they are tied together through their unbelief. In the case of Jesus' brothers, they view Christ through the prism of their own needs. And so they propose an entirely new marketing strategy for Him. An image makeover. They are essentially asking... How could we brand Jesus differently? Jesus, don't be that rustic, rural, unsophisticated preacher guy. Go to the big city where the action is and reveal your power there. You know, what possible motives could have driven the brothers? Were they embarrassed for him? Did they want to be associated and connected to greatness? Indeed, the crowd that just wanted to make him king. Whatever their motive was, they did not reflect. They didn't reflect on the meaning of Jesus' miracles. Those miracles pointed to something way beyond the naked display of power. They pointed to Jesus' true identity. But what did they see? They saw the miracles through the prism of their own urgent and their own immediate needs. That blinded them. And What does John say? They were unable. They were unable. They could not entrust themselves to Jesus. As for the religious leaders, they viewed Jesus through the prism of their own traditions and their own zeal for law-keeping Sorry about that. I'm gonna. What should I do here, at West? We have a new mic. The last couple of weeks, should I lower it? Why don't you bring me the handheld too? That and just let's just use a handheld, so it's not a distraction. Uh, where are we here? The religious leaders—they had forgotten the purpose of the law. They had forgotten the purpose of the law, and that law again was to give shape to loving God and to loving others they found their identity they found their source of pride they found their spiritual confidence not in loving God but in maintaining the external shell of that code you see this miracle this miracle could have awakened them reflection on what Jesus did reflection on the true Meaning of the Sabbath could have whipped a bolt of electricity through their stiffened spirits. But in the course of the debate, they only dug their heels in deeper. Their thinking, our thinking, can get into serious ruts, right? Our thinking, their thinking can get into serious ruts. Yes, now what is a rut? Well, very simply, a rut is a worn pattern. A rut is a fixed course. Thanks, Tammy. Thank you. A rut is a fixed course that is pounded down by constant use. In my hometown, the path of Amish buggies creates a rut in the highway pavement, and those ruts are deep enough that drivers could fall asleep. And that buggy could go for miles and just stay right on course. We often need something startling to get us out of our thinking and mental ruts. Or sometimes, frankly, it's just non-thinking. We sometimes need something startling to move us out of our dullness, our spiritual dullness, and our spiritual apathy. You see, they didn't reject the evidence of the miracle. They agreed that the miracle occurred. This was a religious culture that allowed for the supernatural. But they made a wrong judgment about Jesus because beneath their law-keeping, beneath their manipulation of miracles on the brothers' part, lay one thing that was the same between the brothers and the religious leaders. And that was the ultimate commitment to themselves first. Both the brothers and the religious leaders, one through miracle manipulation and image manipulation, the other through their zeal for law-keeping, at the bottom of both of them was a commitment, an ultimate commitment of self first. And that blinded them. And it can blind you and me today. So That's the first thing. Why did they not get it? Why did they misunderstand Jesus? Here's a second point. How do we still misunderstand Jesus? How do we still? You know, don't look at the text and say, yeah, those religious leaders are terrible. Yeah, those older brothers or younger brothers were terrible. Look inside first and ask yourself, is there something that I'm missing and misunderstanding about Jesus? If we're not careful, we too can see Jesus through the prism of prior beliefs and our commitments, or even our own church traditions. And we too can make reflexive wrong judgments about him. Let me take a few minutes and explain this further. I've used this word prism quite a bit. Let me explain this. A prism is is a way in which you see the world. You know, a prism reflects the way we see things. And we each have a way of seeing the world. And a prism is made up of our beliefs and our ultimate commitments. And we all have them. They are the things that we assume about the world. Again, we might call this prism a worldview, a way of looking at the world. And a worldview is a big story. A worldview is a grand story about how all the little pieces fit together into one. Life has all these little pieces, all these realities that confront us. Life, death, the hope of eternity, human nature, goodness, evil, love, longings. How do all the pieces of our lives fit together. Now our culture, American culture, has a definite, dominant story that seeks to blend all of these little pieces into one big, grand story. And unless you think critically about it, unless you learn another story, this is the one that you will assume is true. This is the rut that will carry you unconsciously. You will accept this view mechanically. It is the air you breathe. It's a story, a grand story, that combines a little bit of our Christian heritage with the modern enlightenment experiment. Here's a term that one sociologist used to describe the dominant American view of life. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. We discussed part of this briefly last week. It's moralistic in that it promises self-help and self-improvement. It's therapeutic in that it focuses on the self, and it sees human behavior, it eliminates human responsibility. In human human behavior, it says that we are primarily a victim of things that have happened to us. And finally, deism is a picture of a detached God who created the world, but is not interested in our daily affairs. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let me give you the five tenets of this view of life. Number one, it says there is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, and then watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most World religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And finally, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now I'm telling you, if you go out and talk to ten people in our culture and quiz them on these questions, I'm telling you, nine out of ten are going to give you this basic view of reality, this view of life. And so what our culture does then is that we see Jesus through this prism, this view. And because of the power of this story, its dominance, our culture has sought to squeeze Jesus into this box. You ever seen a big person try to squeeze into clothing too small? Yeah, it just doesn't look very good, <laughs> doesn't look right. Or you ever seen a tall person try to squeeze into a compact car? Or an animal, like, squeeze into a spot half its size? Like a mouse scooting through a hole in a wall, running from a cat? You know, how did it do that? It doesn't look right. Well, neither does it look right when we try to squeeze Jesus into the tight fit of this worldview. But the attempt has been made, and it's been popularized. It's why theologians, made famous by a sympathetic media, have rewritten the Gospels. And in rewriting the Gospels, they eliminated the sayings of Jesus that are outside this box sayings seen as regressive from a specifically 21st century view. And, of course, underneath all that editing is a chronological snobbery that presumes ancient people were backwards, superstitious, bigoted, and unthinking. And these editors showed an utterly amazing absence of self-awareness. A blindness so complete that they could not recognize the irony of creating a new Jesus that fits so snugly into our 21st century world. Yet an honest reading of the Gospels, which is friends, is just simply what we try to do here on Sunday mornings, is an honest reading of the Gospels shows a much different Jesus than what's translated through moralistic, therapeutic deism. He is one that calls humanity to repentance for inward attitudes and for motives that are self-centered and, yes, indeed, evil. He is one that asserts human nature will not simply improve or evolve over time, but rather we need a brand new heart. We need regeneration from the Holy Spirit. We indeed need a sin-bearing Savior who gave His life for us. The Gospel is one that says God the Father desires an active, ongoing, personal conversation and relationship with us, daily involvement in our lives, and calls us to give back to Him our lives in a daily offering as an act of worship. And indeed, it is a gospel that says Jesus Christ will judge men and women at the end of life. And indeed, he will exclude some from heaven. Those who commit evil. And the most pronounced evil is the conscious rejection of the Son of God. And so, it's because of this prism that we, too, can misunderstand Jesus and we have to realize that the worldview that you have been brought up in, the worldview that has been a part of your thinking and the world that you live in is a worldview that tries to fit and squeeze Jesus into it. And it's not the Jesus of the first century. It's not the Jesus of the Gospels. So it leaves us then with this really troubling question. Is there any way to get it right? Right? If they misunderstood him, if people misunderstand him today, and, and are we so arrogant to think that we can get it right? Is there any way we can know for certain? Well, again, the answer to that question is answered in this text. Jesus was teaching at the temple. The audience is amazed. He's so knowledgeable. He's so articulate. There's, He's Definite, there's an authority to his message. I mean, this guy's from Galilee, it's like being from Erie, Pennsylvania. He didn't attend the right schools. And, and, and by the way, Galilee, there's all these, all these Greeks and pagans that live there, and they're all they're all just spiritually compromised. Where did this guy's learning come from? And Jesus answers their question by himself asking a question. As he often does in verse 17, he answers the question How will you know if my teaching is true? How do you know if it's from God? Look at what verse 17 says. This is an amazing verse. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will circle the word no. He will know whether this teaching is from God. Or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Whether it's from God or whether I'm speaking on my own, whether I'm making it up. What's the key point here? What's the key difference? What is the secret, if we can call it a secret? What is the key to entering into knowing for certain? Jesus says it's not that right judgment is not a matter of academic learning. Jesus says that right learning is not a matter of some high ethical achievement. It is a matter of your will. Now, your will is not the same as emotions, though we often often confuse them. Your emotions can can inform your will, but your will is different than what you feel. Your will is... Think of your will... This is how the Bible actually talks about it. Think of your will as like the seat or as the bottom of who you are. Not your literal bottom, but like the bottom of the ocean. You can't go any deeper than the bottom of the ocean. You can't go any deeper in who you are than your will. It's like the steering wheel of your life. It determines the direction and the course of your life. It determines what you do, and more importantly, it determines the person that you become, your will. Here is what Jesus is saying. If in that will, the bottom of who you are, the seed of who you are, if you are hungry for God, if you are thirsty for righteousness, you will know if this teaching comes from God or if I made it up. There's your answer. Jesus Christ is making this staggering claim. My goodness, if he's not the Son of God, he is something he is either very arrogant or he has lost it. Because what he's saying is this: My teaching and my words so mirror the Father's that if you believe in him, what? You will accept my teaching and you'll accept my teaching as being from him. Jesus' words have a divine, ring to them they are self authenticating now it's not the same as circular reasoning because his words match and his words conform to the kinds of truth that we learn from other places it matches and it conforms to that but in and of themselves his words have a divine ring to them and his words taken as a whole they set forth that big story when we look at the Scriptures as a whole of which Jesus is the fulfillment of them, Jesus sets forth a big story that makes sense of all of the individual pieces of life, whether it's life, death, human nature, good, evil, love, longings, eternity itself. Jesus and the big story that he sets forth makes sense. Of life now in conclusion you and me as we try to understand and not miss the Son of God and his work and his presence in our lives today he's not here in time and space he's not here in a physical body but Christ is here working through his spirit and everyday friends And in the seasons of our lives, we have the opportunity to be like the brothers, to be like the religious leaders, or to be different and to understand and to see Him. And will we get it perfectly right in this life? Our understanding of Jesus, our grasp of God? Of course not. We won't. God's eternal, we're finite. God's perfect, we're imperfect. You know, even after becoming Christians, we still fight our biases that threaten to cloud our understanding. We're still working on those things that we're ultimately committed to that aren't Jesus Christ. We fight that idea of self being the first commitment, self first. And when we do that, clouds our understanding. And it is why we must stay humble both before God and before one another, It is why we must stay in community with other Christians because they help correct and sharpen our understanding. Other believers, when we stay in community and friendship and stay humble before them, and when we don't assume that we have a a complete corner on the truth because we're fallible, because we know we have our own biases, that's why we must stay humble before one another it's why we must stay in community with one another. Why Christian friendship and things like life groups are so valuable. Because they help correct and sharpen and define our grasp, our understanding. And in the broader Christian community, this includes, this includes community with Christians from other walks of life. It includes community with Christians that are have gone before us, that are now dead. And communicating with them through through books. And it also includes being in touch with Christians across the globe who do not have our own particular cultural uh, biases and prejudices. And as we work together as a community, we get what? A clearer and clearer picture of what the words of Jesus mean. Through his word, through the word of Christ, through believing and accepting Jesus Christ and his word, we can know with certainty that we are connecting to the Father. What it all comes down to is our will. Is our will. What do you really want? What do you really want? At the bottom of your soul is your ultimate commitment to self or is your ultimate commitment to truth and to God? If your ultimate commitment is to self, There will always be a cloud of misunderstanding. But the more we can make that ultimate commitment to God, the greater certainty we'll have that we're hearing from Christ and we're believing in Christ. If we want Him, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, happy, fulfilled, Set apart are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for truth, for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Paul, you want to work your way up and who's ever coming with you? Jesus mentioned here in this passage circumcision. I think there's probably several reasons why Circumcision was a a pertinent um, illustration to use. Circumcision represented in the Old Testament the people moving into an agreement with God, a covenant with God. Circumcision was a seal of agreement that said, you belong to God. And the removal of skin from the body was a way of saying that all of us, our time, even our bodies, belong to God. Now, in the New Testament, in our times, we have another seal, and it's called baptism. And we baptize to show that we belong to Jesus. In baptism, we are offering our lives, our time, and indeed our bodies, all of us, all of us, to Him. When we go under the water, we are saying that we have died with Christ. When we come up out of the water, we are saying we have been raised with Christ. This morning, we have some baptisms in both services, but uh, Paul, come on over here. In the first service, um, Paul, the door, is going to baptize his son, Benjamin. And uh, Paul, you want to introduce, introduce him? Sure. Good morning.